Welcome to episode 20, Critical Thinking for Addiction Counseling, The Importance of the Assessment by Heather Black Coyne, Certified Drug and Alcohol Abuse Counselor from Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hi, welcome to Critical Thinking for Addictions Counselor. I'm Heather Blackcoin. I'm going to be talking to you guys for the next hour about the assessment. The assessment as it relates to substance use disorders, co-occurring disorders, and our objectives today are to really learn the importance of the assessment, why we dig into it, why it has to be done at every agency as somebody's coming into treatment, We're going to learn interviewing questions that enhance the quality of the assessment, making sure that we get the good stuff, we get the information that we need to make recommendations for that client that's with us. I'm going to share with you some background about my passion, why I love the assessment. I nerd out that way. It's really a good time. I don't don't know if I want to say a good time, but it is um, a time that I really love spending with the clients. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that and why I feel that way. And just really discuss the interview and clinical skill necessary for a good assessment. There's opportunities for just going through and answering uh, questions or Asking questions and getting a standardized answer, there's a lot of assessment tools that do that. However, really to have what you need, I think that skill and interviewing skill is important to enhance that assessment. Before we get started, I want to talk about or just send a reminder out there that we always want to practice within our scope. I am a KDAC 2 I am a drug and alcohol counselor, have been for some time. So when I do a biopsychosocial assessment, I'm really gathering all the information that I can, but really informing the substance use disorder treatment process of it and always consulting and involving other parties if there's anything that's outside of my scope. Before we get started, I want to imagine a an office setting. So you have a lobby area and let's say there's a nice blue gray accent wall, a couch there. You have a client sitting on the end of the couch, dark hair, looking down. He's got a couch pillow in his lap and he's sitting there and he's pulling on the fringes of the pillow. He's there for his assessment. He's been waiting for a little bit and that's who you're going to encounter an example of somebody that you can encounter when you go to do your assessment. We're going to leave him in that waiting room for just a second while we talk about some of these other processes, but I really wanted to set the tone with a client, somebody we're going to be talking about and sort of having a visual for an individual that will be sitting in with us while we're doing our assessment a little bit later. So he's sitting out there You can give him a name if you want to. I'm not going to. I'm just going to talk about him as as the man in the waiting room. But feel free to name him whatever you'd like to name him. So leaving him there, we're going to come back and talk about the assessment as a new case manager and clinician. Oftentimes in this industry, individuals are largely undertrained for the addiction world. In a master's program, you might have 
one or two classes that focus on addiction where you run through all the different types of addiction and try and cover a large number of topics and information related to in such a short amount of time in, like I said, one or two classes. Or there are drug and alcohol certification programs where you're either self-taught, you can go online, follow through with the modules, or you might sit in a series of classes related to but really not have that hands-on experience um, to really put that stuff into action. There are practicums in place where people get to practice that, and that's really when you begin to see what it is that you need to really be successful in this industry. Um, there really isn't any amount of education that can replace what a real-life client or a real-life assessment is going to look like. However, oftentimes individuals are just generally undertrained for the addiction field. So as a new case manager and clinician, I was really excited. What I wanted to do was come in and change the world. I still want to change the world, but back then I just had this excitement and zest and thankfully I still have it. But I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. I was not ready for what I was going to encounter. I didn't understand the multiple layers of the disease of addiction and all of the components and everything in place. I was really naive to think that I could just come in, be myself, sit across from a client and really get to the meat and potatoes of things, although I was told that that was going to be the case. It didn't really register. I did assessments for the first six years that I did treatment. I worked in an outpatient setting and conducted a lot of assessments for DUIs, probation violations, possession charges, and oftentimes did assessments for deferred prosecutions, which is a two-year program that they offer in Washington State. And the first few assessments that I did, I used a standardized template that was created in the electronic medical record at the agency that I worked for, and I thought assessments were a breeze. Brought the client in, asked these questions, they answered them quite easily, bam, 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 we were done. I just really was blown away by the compare and contrast of what I hear people say about assessments and then my experience of sitting there in the assessment. The second agency that I worked for, we did handwritten, unstructured interviews to collect the information that we needed and then we typed it into a very long, lengthy Word document. And that was really where I figured out that the prior three years I didn't really know what I was doing and and likely wasn't doing a great job. Um, and that's also where I really developed my passion because I started to see people and their whole story outside of the specific questions that were answered in the previous template that I was operating by. And when I had these very rich stories in front of me and I was going to make clinical recommendations to 
a court or whoever was requesting the assessment, I really felt good about the recommendations. I felt like I had this beautiful picture and had as much information as I was going to get um, to help inform that recommendation. So that's really where my passion for it began. And I began to love sitting across from the client and asking these questions and being really curious, had pen to paper, we used legal pads, pages and pages of legal pads to collect this information. And I remember when I first started working there, I was drawn to wanting to type it out. I wanted to be efficient. I wanted to get as much information as I could in short amount of time as I could. And I wanted to be typing it at the same time to save time and eventually I was able to move away from my trained ways and get more comfortable with this old school way which ended up being really helpful and ultimately changing the way that I viewed this process. So I learned how to effectively interview an individual and I felt really good about it. And I think that my clients probably felt better about the assessments that I was doing at this other place than they had previously. I don't really know that. I don't have any research on that. But I felt like the relationship that I was able to develop was much more beneficial for both the client and myself in that amount of time. The importance of the assessment really became clear to me at that time because I was starting to see the whole picture and I was beginning to really understand the multi-layers that are of all of us as humans in general, but really some of the layers under the disease and a lot of the pre-existing issues or concerns that may have led up to why somebody would abuse substances. I got to really be an investigator and I got to really be curious and my intuition was further developed by these questioning processes and my connection to that other human was also further developed as I just said. So that's why I love it so much. Again, I can nerd out on the process. I can really get into it because I enjoy it so much. And I know that that's not always, I know that that's not always the case. So my hope is, is that we can talk about it a little bit more. My hope is that we can really start to get a bird's eye view and then go down back to our man that's waiting in the waiting room and really get a closer view at the process and as a result maybe enjoy it or love it or have a, a different take on it that makes us enjoy it or love it a little bit more. So in a research article, Adopting Practice Guidelines and Assessment Tools, Reichman, Fuller, Sadie, and McCarty, they conducted a study from 1997 to 2001 and researched Northeastern substance abuse providers and their use of standardized assessment tools. So back then, the use of standardized assessment tools was really just starting to come about and be more used. They discussed a standard of care being necessary to reduce unnecessary use of services, uncertain outcome, and risk management. So it's kind of a big deal. If we have a lot of people using a lot of different tools, which we do, then 
there's a lot of variables and potential for poor outcomes. So really being skilled at this is really important. So in 2001, 55% of the freestanding substance abuse agencies they researched used ASAM criteria, which there's six dimensions in the ASAM criteria, starting with acute withdrawal, ending with the recovery support environment. It is a standardized assessment tool that informs levels of care that are recommended. So 55% of the freestanding substance abuse agencies, they used ASAM as sort of a, a template, and 86% of those agencies had used assessments created specifically by their staff to assess addiction and mental health. In 1997, 100% of the agencies used assessments that they created in-house. That doesn't mean that they didn't use the ASAM criteria in their in-house developed assessment. It just means that they created their own assessment. So adoption of best practices are influenced by funding entities, organizational structure, education of staff, philosophy of treatment and training opportunities. These were some of the variables that they looked at in this study. And it's important because often we find ourselves working in an organization that has their practices in place. They may or may not use evidence-based screening tools. With a high percentage of agencies back then and ongoing creating their own assessments, we have a responsibility to our client to ensure that we are doing our due diligence to reduce harm by conducting a thorough assessment and ensuring appropriate clinical recommendation. So assessments, they inform treatment, treatment plans, that's a big thing, make appropriate referrals. So with the information that we have, we're able to make appropriate referrals and we're better able to make an accurate diagnosis and recommendation. SAMHSA states in their Tip 42, Substance Abuse Treatment for Persons with Co-Occurring Disorders, a basic assessment covers basic demographic information, strength and problem areas, stage of change for both mental health and substance use disorders, a preliminary determination of care, medical issues, cultural issues, gender-specific and sexual orientation, and legal issues. Additionally, they state the goals of the assessment are to capture a chronological history of past mental health symptoms, diagnoses, treatment, and impairment before the onset of the substance abuse and, any, and during any periods of extended absence. Secondly, capture current strengths, supports, limitations, skill deficits, and cultural barriers related to treatment recommendation. And thirdly, determine the stage of change for each problem, which they also listed in the basic assessment um, outline, that determine the stage of change for each problem and identify external motivators that help support treatment adherence. So at a very basic level, these are the things that we're looking at in an assessment. Sometimes the structured interview has or does not have these things in there, but as you know now, these are things that you, with knowing now, these are things that you can look for, ask for, and really be mindful of while you're doing the assessment.
So as a substance use disorder clinician or somebody who might be conducting assessment, um, a social worker, a therapist, some of the things that we're up against when we're doing an assessment. David Mealy, he has this book called Tips and Topics, and in this book he identifies the three Ds. A or one, whichever you want to go with, is this is a deadly disease. Addiction is unfortunately taking out so many people and it seems to be, it's, it feels like it's getting worse anyways, but you hear a lot about the opioid epidemic and it seems like each decade there's some epi- epidemic that we're up against and this disease is deadly. People have lost their lives. People who you might be interviewing know individuals that have lost their lives to this disease. It's really sad and unfortunate, and it's important that we ask questions to screen and appropriately diagnose. The second D that he talks about is denial. Addiction is riddled with denial. He has three subpoints to denial. A, there's conscious lying. There's flat out lying saying, I'm not doing that. I didn't steal this. That's not a problem for me. There's a lot of shame around the disease. There are a lot of consequences around the disease. There are a lot of good reasons in the mind of the addict to lie about what's going on. There's also the general effects of too many intoxicants. There's amnesia, there's blackouts. When somebody is under the influence, they simply may not remember what their actions are, what they did, or what their timeline is. And this could also be the cause for conflicting information between a client and any collateral reports. The third one under denial was is the unconscious survival mechanism for protection against the pain of the shame that's associated with the reality of the disease, what it's done to them, how it's affected them, how their relationships are affected. So many consequences can happen, and when an individual really has to take a look at that, that can be a really painful experience. And so oftentimes, the unconscious protective mechanism is to rationalize, justify one or other, one or two or many other defense mechanisms that might come up. The third D that he talks about is detachment. Detachment is the ability to balance the client's responsibility with your own, with my own professional responsibility. I want to have enough space between myself and my client to allow them to make their mistakes, whatever that might look like, and that can be difficult, and I oftentimes can or want to, you know, peg an issue on them. They didn't do A, so B happened. However, I want to have that boundary and that professional space to allow them to make their mistakes without... Um, placing blame on the client, and I want to have enough accountability and detachment to look at what I didn't do that could have led to a poor outcome. What question did I not ask? 
what did I not screen for? Did I not um, identify if there was a co-occurring issue going on? What could that look like? What can I do to improve outcomes? That's a really big deal, and that's oftentimes difficult to do. And I'll tell you, the disease of addiction can be loud, it can be chaotic, and it can look like it's all the client's doing. They've done A, B, and C to cause this outcome, and I can get into counselor mode and say, well, what are we going to do about A, B, and C, as opposed to taking a good look at myself and identifying what I could do better, what I could have done differently, what I want to change for better outcomes in the future. I love the three Ds. They're simple. I think there's a lot of truth to them. And I think there's quite a bit of information right there alone to inform the assessment process. Some of the other things that we're up against is the undertraining that I talked about earlier or earlier. SAMHSA also states in their tip 42 that there are a number of variables that are not obvious to the new counselor. The setting of the assessment, the instruction of the assessment, privacy and trust issues, culture. So these all these variables that inform our outcomes, all of them are difficult to manage but really important to be mindful of. And with time and with education, we start to take and utilize all of this information and put it together, and it really supports good relationship and good assessments. If nothing else, just good relationship. And then comes the good assessment. We are up against seemingly unmotivated clients. They're in here, their arms are crossed, they don't want to be here, they're here because they want to get back into their parents' home. They have to complete X, Y, and Z amount of treatment before they're allowed to go back home. They have to at least complete this assessment so that they can provide it to the judge and let the judge know that there isn't a problem so they're not charged with the DUI. They have to provide an assessment because there isn't a problem. However, there's a divorce going on, and in order to have visitation or be able to have shared custody with their child, they have to say that there's an assessment in place that states that there isn't a problem. So oftentimes, they come in, arms are crossed, they're not here because they want to be here, that they're excited to be here, although there is a small percentage of people that actually are. But the large majority come in, and there's some sort of heavy, painful external motivator that's causing them to be here. And so they seem unmotivated to be collaborative and answer these questions that you're trying to get from them. One of the biggest things that we're up against is time and busy schedules. Assessments are a long process. They do take time, and not only do they take the time that you have right there in front of the client, oftentimes there's follow-up, summarizing the information that you have, consulting, running your information by your supervisor, asking for their thoughts on it, and it can be a lengthy process. And most people that work in this industry or with clients have busy schedules. 
a lot of individual sessions. Maybe there's a lot of group therapy. There are a lot of hours. There are a lot of, there is a lot of paperwork that goes hand in hand with the work that we do. And so a biopsychosocial and the time that is involved in conducting a thorough one, a good one, one that someone uh, feels really proud about, that can just really be a bummer in a busy week, knowing that that needs to be done and that you want to do it well. And so I really want to validate that. I also want to validate that there are accrediting bodies that govern different treatment centers that dictate when it needs to be done, how it needs to be done, in what manner, template, format. And so the assessment process can really be boxes that need to be checked. I need to get this done within 72 hours. I'm going to fit it in here, get as much of it done as I can. And so it becomes a task. And so I understand that that's something that a lot of us battle in this industry specifically. Another thing that we might be up against is templates. The, the questions are already there. The boxes for the answers are already there. There's small boxes to type in. I was just doing an assessment the other day and while I can type as much as I want to, my window of visibility was about a finger length across the screen. And so really being able to type what I wanted to and word it and see it, that was a that was a challenge. And I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to add that into some of the challenges that we experience on this on this talk. So uh, the other thing is too little or too much information. The client might say a ton and you have to discern what information is important and help the client navigate through that process or they say too little and you're not really sure what you're going to do, what you're going to do with this information because it just isn't enough to really inform anything. The other thing that I want to add that we're up against when we have a client sitting in front of us is that they may have a, they may have never shared this information with anybody ever before. They can be scared and not really know what's going on. But B, they could have shared this information several times before they got to you. Perhaps they did a screening on a phone call before their appointment was made. Perhaps they just came to you from a detox facility where they had to answer all these questions for a psychiatric evaluation or a nursing assessment. And so they can really just be burned out on answering these questions by the time that they get to you. And I think that's really important to note when we're thinking about who's in front of us, what they're going through, what that has to do with how our process is going. And so as I said earlier about what Samsha said about the variables that are not obvious to the new counselor, those are some of those things. And it's a lot, there's a lot of variables to manage, to navigate, to know about, and really understand. So that's why we talk about them, so that we can start to conceptualize what that looks like and be able to picture what that means for us in us trying to conduct an assessment. So, we talked about the importance of the assessment. Really our responsibility to make sure we're doing a thorough one. We went through a number of different things that talks about the basis 
of an assessment, the goals, what we need to get in there, and some of the things that we're up against. So we know all of this information going in to the assessment. So we're gonna go back to our man that's in the waiting room. Maybe you've given him a name. You can call him by name. We go out there and what's really important with him sitting there, so if you recall, we have a man sitting at the end of the couch, dark hair, pale skin. He is just sitting in the corner, looking down. He has one of the couch pillows on his lap and he's just pulling at the fringes, awaiting his appointment. He may or may not know that it's an assessment. He may know that it's an assessment, but doesn't know what that actually means. He may have may he may or may not have shared his information several times before he got to you. There's a chance that he's forced to be there in that seat for some reason or another. This may be the fifth time that he's been to a treatment center or a therapist to be evaluated for what's going on and he may feel a great deal of shame as a result of being back in treatment. He could have been sober for a period of time and has relapsed and is coming back to see what he can do next. This could be his very first time being here and he may not even really realize that he has a problem. He's sitting there, he's looking down at his pillow, pulling on the fringes and I want to make a concerted effort to engage him and meet him where he's at. Establish rapport is something that we hear often. Always have rapport. Therapeutic alliance and rapport, that's something that we do hear about a lot in our training and in our classes, and it really is important in this case specifically. And something that I didn't mention in some of the things that we're up against is that this is a stranger to us. So we're going to ask a plethora of questions to obtain a chronological history of this client, and we don't know him. We don't have a therapeutic relationship with him. So we need to be mindful of that and really honor that this client is about to walk into your office and take that brave step and share this information with somebody that he doesn't even know. So I want to approach this young man sitting on the couch in a kind human way first. I want to engage him and let him know, hey, thank you for waiting. Thank you for showing up today. I'm Heather. We're gonna walk back to my office and I'll just talk to you a little bit about what's going on. So I'm gonna bring him in. He sits on the chair. I know from when he was sitting on the couch that there was some sort of comfort measure having something on his lap. He doesn't have that in my office. I don't have a couch pillow. So I wanna be mindful that he's exposed now. There isn't a barrier between he and I. He doesn't have that pillow. And so I want to be really kind and gentle, always kind and gentle, always honoring the fact that he's taken this step to come in here and talk to me about what's going on. It's important to me that I explain the process of an assessment to him. 
whether I know or don't know how many times he's been to treatment, how many times he's had an assessment, if he's ever done therapy before, regardless of what this individual might know about this process, I want to make sure that I don't assume and that I talk about the process with him. Hey, so you're here for an assessment today. Are you familiar with what an assessment is? It takes a little bit of time to get through this process. It involves a series of questions. Some of them are going to be intimate questions. Some are going to be general name, phone number, just confirm I have the information correctly. And some of it's going to talk about some really important, potentially sensitive information. We're going to be here for a little while, and if at any point you're uncomfortable, you need a drink of water, you need to use the restroom, please feel free to let me know. We're going to get through this together. I want to make sure that you're comfortable. And first and foremost, I want to thank you. Thank you for being here today. I know I said that out there a little bit earlier, but it's important, it's important for me to let you know that I'm really glad that you're here and I thank you for spending this time. And I want to ask, what do you want to share with me about why you're here today? Let's talk about that first and invite that individual to just share with me with what is going on with them. And right there I'll learn what type of motivator what kind of motivator this individual has in their life that's driving them to be here. And I can get a general gist of what this client wants from this session. It's important we don't assume based on what their answer is because we don't know this individual. And even if we did, we can't read their mind. However, it can get a, give us a general idea and something that's important to remember that we don't fall prey to is that we, it's important to remember we don't get a certain, um, we don't have a preconceived idea about why this person is here. Addiction facility could very easily equal an addiction problem, but that may or may not be the case, and we don't want to put our clients in any boxes unnecessarily. I think it's human nature to begin to judge and fit information into pre-existing schemas that we have as best as possible. It's important to just let the client be here, have a fresh slate, and figure out what's going on with this client irrespective of what's gone on with other clients or in the history of treatment or addiction. So. Getting that information, listening as best as possible without pre-assigning the information that they're saying. And I suggest going through the back door. And what I mean by that is when you start at the beginning and you just start to talk about this client's information, and if we tie this back to what um, Samsha said, in obtaining a, chronolo a chronological history pre-substance abuse, we can really start at the beginning and not have to start with, hey, so 
What drug were you using that got you here? And how often do you use that drug? When's the last time that you used that drug? How much of that drug do you use? That's the information that they expect to share because they're doing a substance use assessment. However, that's where we start to get into some of those canned responses and we can really get into that question answer format and really detract from the beautiful process of obtaining a picture and capturing an image of this client's life. And so I really like to start with the interview process going way back. And I'll tell you, most, most substance abuse assessments that I've done, with the exception of the unstructured clinical assessment that I did for that period of time, started out with substances. Which ones do you use? How much do you use them? How often? How old were you when you first started using them? When's the last time you used them? Most of the assessments started there, and it makes sense. If we're assessing for addiction, I get it. It makes sense. For me, I find that if I can start at the beginning and just talk about what went on in your childhood and move up from there, I learn more about the substances that they used, how much and when and all that good jazz than I do if I just flat out ask those questions. So, tell me about your childhood. What was that experience like for you? Did you have a best friend? And you let them tell you a story. Who were you closest to? Were you closest to mom, dad? Did you have some siblings that you were really close to? Tell me about that experience. Oh, what was that like for you when your little sister was born? And all the while I'm watching and assessing the presentation of my client, is he still looking down? I'm still being really kind and gentle, being aware of this spatial context, being aware he doesn't have that pillow on his lap for that protection and really kindly and gently engaging in just general questioning about what was going on when you were growing up. And when I find that out, I can ask some questions about that. Sometimes there's not a lot of information. Sometimes they don't remember that far back, which can sometimes be an indicator as well. And then I moved through middle school. Tell me about middle school. Did your friend group change? Did you still have the same friends that you had when you were in elementary school? How old were you when you started to have sleepovers? Did you have sleepovers? How did you do in school? Did you ever get in trouble? How was it at home? Did you guys eat dinner at a certain time? Did you guys go to church on Sunday? Do you guys go to church? What does that look like? Was there some sort of structure? Did you have a bedtime? And I like to look at the type of structure that existed or didn't exist at home and start to identify trends. And hopefully by the time I'm done with all of this, I can pull a thread through it and start to connect the dots. And that's what I'm really hoping to do. So I'll ask similar questions through the different age groups just to see the trends to see what happened. Were they really close to people in elementary school and then in middle school they started to get bullied and so they pulled away and had one best friend or no best friends? Was their family dynamic as such that they didn't have sleepovers? People weren't allowed to come over. They weren't allowed to go to somebody else's house. Why was that and what did that look like? 
Did their relationship with mom or dad change? Who was their primary caregiver, if it was even mom or dad? That's something you want to ask. And why was that relationship with the primary caregiver good, bad, or indifferent, whatever it might have been? Middle school is where I start to really see some indicators of behavior. Maladaptive behavior, I would say where maybe they got in trouble at school for acting out in class. Maybe they got in trouble for a little bit of vandalism. Oftentimes, actually, in the eighth grade or so, they started to smoke marijuana or try marijuana. Or they started to see behaviors that were going on at home and they started to make sense of their own world and they start to talk about that a little bit. So if they might say that my mom is an alcoholic, but when I was little, I didn't really know she was an alcoholic. I didn't really know any different. And it's usually in middle school that they start to identify what's going on and see some of the behaviors as they are. So high school High school is a good opportunity to ask about substance abuse in a casual way because this is a period of time where a lot of people experiment with marijuana. They experiment with alcohol. Sometimes they drink a little bit too much. Oftentimes um, they're sneaking it when they're using it. Sometimes family members are offering them their first drink. So we get to ask about that and what did it look like when you were using it and experimenting with it? Was it on the weekend? Did you ever drink too much? Did you ever drink so much alcohol that you got really sick? What did that look like? How did you feel afterwards? What what was your thought process after you got sick and you drank so much alcohol? Did you think you were never going to drink again? So I get to start asking those questions that are really relevant to the substance use disorder process and the addiction process because I can start to see where they might be, um, you know, having firm resolution to not use again, but they did. I might start to see where they had consequences and they minimize the consequences and continue to use. I will start to see what they used, why they used, who they used it with, and this really starts to inform the way that they use substances in the future. Now, that's just a generalization. Every story really is different in some way or another. However, what I really want you to take away is that the whole picture, the storytelling process up to when they started to use substances really gives you a good clinical picture about what's going on. When I ask about their relationships, I ask about each relationship separately. And I'll I'll tell you, I have um, asked a question on an assessment template that says, tell me about how your life was growing up. That question has been on several assessments that I've conducted on an electronic medical record template. And more often than not, an individual will say, growing up was good. I had everything that I needed. So 
and that's and that's it. And then I we have to dig and get a couple more things. My parents did the best that they could with what they had. Um, we went on trips and vacations. We spent a lot of time together as a family. There's several general responses that I've received over time that really don't inform me about much. And so when I ask this way, and I'll tell you a challenge is, is when you have a template and you're trying to do an unstructured interview, trying to type and make the most time and make it the most efficient and, and really work for you can be difficult. So how you figure that out, I'll leave that up to you. I've sort of figured my own way out because I really want that information, but I really understand the constraints of the template as well. So that's just an example. Tell me how it was growing up and bam, I get a very simple answer with not much information to do much with. I want to also emphasize that it's important to use your intuition. If something needs expanding, you can see when somebody, I, I don't want to say you can see, so oftentimes you can feel and sometimes see when somebody has more information about a topic that they're not telling you about. And there's various ways that they can do that. If I'm watching my, my guy sitting in the chair and he starts looking to the door rather than his lap that he's been looking at for the last little while, then that might be an indicator that there was something really sensitive there. Something else popped up for him that maybe he didn't decide to share or he did share it and that's what caused the uncomfortability. But there was something else going on in the space that caused some additional exploration. So I do ask for the sake of the assessment process and really starting to identify diagnoses, those basic substance abuse questions that are on most assessments, the when did you start, so on and so forth. And I am able to tie that information in with the story that has been provided. So, oh, so you started, so tell me again, you started at age 15. Earlier we talked about when you were in eighth grade, you had a sip of alcohol. Is that different than than this here? And they might say, yeah, I did have a sip of alcohol. I even had a beer that summer, but when I started drinking was at age 15. And I can start to identify discrepancies or patterns or conflicting reports, and I can delve deeper and really get a better understanding of what's going on. I'm trying to identify if they meet any diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder, mild, moderate, or severe, identifying consequences, impairment, withdrawal, that sort of thing. And that information I generally get in the storytelling, but the patterns, the use, the specific amounts, what they would consider normal, what they generalize, I really see that in some of the standardized templates. So both of them are useful, and really the goal is to be able to incorporate a structured assessment with an unstructured assessment. How can you do both for the benefit of the outcome and the clinical recommendation and this young man sitting in front of you?
or sitting in front of me. It's really about connecting and engaging and staying engaged. It's really about being in the moment and honoring your your own time in doing this assessment and really honoring their time. I believe at a very basic level that if I can connect with you, if I can connect with him, our friend from the waiting room, then I can pretty much get what I need or whatever was supposed to happen in that space, in that time. I can get what I need and I'm keenly aware that I have an appointment, another appointment in two hours from now, an appointment after that, a meeting after that, and documentation to do beyond that. I'm keenly aware that there's a piece of me, though I love to nerd out on assessments, though I love and am passionate about the assessment process, there's a part of me that wants to get through it get it wrapped up, one and done, good to go. I'm on time for my next appointment with an opportunity to get some water and breathe, walk around a little bit. So really trying to manage that is important for me. And I have to keep in mind that my brain can take me out of the present. It can take me to the next appointment. I can get sidetracked and I can really get in robot mode, which is what I want to avoid doing. The assessment process has seemed to always go so much better, so much more seamlessly if I can connect. Whether that individual is trying to tell me too little of information or too much information, if I can stay connected and present and not worried about the external uh, issues and pressures of my day, then I'm much more successful. And I'm doing my client a better service. I, my goal is to do no harm and I have the, my potential to do harm increases when I, when I'm not here even if it's not for just a second. And sometimes that might just be wanting to word something right. And so really being intentional about how I pause, how I create space for me to document what I need to document, how I think about what the next question is, how I'm showing up and presenting for this individual who might be very scared, trepidatious, concerned, they're, they're experiencing a plethora of feelings, some I may not even know about. So really being intuitive, developing that skill, there's a lot of pieces to manage. As I spoke about earlier, there's a lot of different variables. And one of the things that I can highly recommend, and this is part of my own process, is, is practicing interviewing, talking about it, maybe alone with our imaginary guy sitting in the chair, how you might begin to ask those questions, what are some of the questions that you might ask, practicing the tone and the setting in which you're gonna say them. And I know that we're all busy. You could even do it in your car, but you can start to get some of your own practice under your belt without even having that client in front of you. 
And it's nice if you have the experience of knowing a client and having done assessments because then you can really imagine yourself in that setting and you can take that anywhere. You can take that imagination anywhere with you and be thinking about this and practicing it. So at the end of the assessment, I'm going to close out with my guy. He's opened up a little bit. He's made some eye contact. His body language has relaxed some. At times, he's looked down in a way, but primarily more engaged than he was when I first met him. And we even get a few little laughs in every now and again, and he's a little bit more comfortable. And I share with him, hey, thank you so much for all that information. I'm really honored that you would take this time and share all of this with me. I know it's sensitive information, and it's not always easy to talk about. So I want to thank you for doing that. And what I'm going to do now is I take this information, I wrap it up, I summarize it, and then I make a clinical recommendation. And the process by which I share with you that recommendation is XYZ. I call you, you come in, we review it, whatever your standard of practice might be. But making sure that you let them know what that process is how you're going to explain it to them, what the next steps are that they can expect, and then walk them back out and wish them well on their day. You want to take that information and you want to consult, consult, consult. If you need consultation, if you've got questions, you want to make sure that you utilize your supervisor to be able to do that. And I'll tell you what, with that expanded interviewing process, you will have already asked, been a, you will be able to, or have already answered some of the questions that your supervisor might ask you. For example, if somebody has experienced suicidal um, ideation with an attempt in the past, how long ago was that? Well, you might know that in high school that they first started to experience trouble and that that it first started happening then and it really started to progress or their last attempt was a couple months ago before they came in, you're going to want to know when that took place. Or if a person has been drinking, if they really did just start a year ago or if they started drinking heavily a year ago but really dabbled here and there from ages 15 to 19. So with that thorough assessment, you're really able to collaborate much more effectively and oftentimes answer some of the questions that your supervisor might ask you while you're trying to consult. So we've completed the assessment process. We've shared with the client what the next steps are, what the follow-up process is going to look like, and likely the next time I'm going to see that individual is going to be in an individual session. And so I want to take the information from the assessment and use it to inform care. My treatment plan, our treatment plan, not my treatment plan, our treatment plan should be driven from this assessment. The client has already spent a good amount of their time divulging information about themselves that is rich, clinically rich, enough certainly to inform care. So what problem areas were identified and can be used to drive treatment. Now, that doesn't mean that all problem areas that are identified 
are appropriate to work on upfront and initially. But we have a list of things to work with and we can ask the client, what do you want to work on? What does that look like? And oftentimes we have to find a way to word it in a way that meets the objective and the goal and make sure that it's measurable and such. But we get to provide the client options for areas to work on. And maybe they say something that they want to work on and we know that that's in the assessment already from having done it. And we go ahead and put that on the treatment plan. But it drives the treatment plan. The information um, is a forum now, a collaboration forum to discuss what we're going to work on. And so, for example, trauma and discord with parental relationships may have been identified. And you and the client can have a discussion about working on relational skills, coping skills as foundational work before digging into the trauma work. That doesn't mean that the trauma wasn't identified as a problem area, but it does mean that there's some preliminary work that needs to be done before you can begin working on the trauma. Something that I want to emphasize is that we said this a little bit earlier, a client may have shared this information, their personal information on a phone intake, an admissions intake, a nursing assessment, and then with you. The last thing that I want to do is go into an individual session following the assessment and start to ask questions as if I'm uninformed about what's going on with the client. I really want to come and bring my clinical work to the table and say, hey, you know, through during the assessment, these were some themes that I identified. Have a collaborative talk with the client, have a discussion, bounce some ideas back and forth, and really from that comes the treatment plan. Oftentimes, clients will come in and their individual session will be separate from their assessment as if it were in two different categories and the client gets to the individual session and we say, what would you like to work on today? The client treatment outcomes are more positive when a client has a specific plan, goal, and measurable objectives that they can use and follow to obtain that and that they know what that is. So your client should know what their treatment plan is and I think it shows a lot for the work that you did with them when you can say, these are what I identified, let's talk about it. As if what they said really mattered because it does matter. So we have the information, let's use it to build the relationship use it to convey to the client that yes, I care, yes, we collected this information, and this is its purpose. This is how we're going to use it. This is how we're going to inform treatment. And the baseline identified in the initial assessment will inform ongoing assessments as to whether client is making progress or not. So not only is it beneficial for that initial treatment planning and sitting across from the client and showing them that you've made the best use of their time and their information, but it also is a measure of where they were when they came in, where they were in the middle when they were reassessed. Of course, ongoing assessment takes place, but it provides benchmarks. It shows 
progress. And that's huge for a client to be able to see that and to know that, that, hey, they came in one way. And as a result of the work they've been doing on their treatment plan, this is how they're presenting now. So it has many functions. It's a beautiful tool. It makes sense why it's so necessary in informing the care that we do. So this assessment is the launching pad for the therapeutic relationship Rapport is established, care is communicated, and useful information is gathered about your client. It is a lot of work, and there are a lot of skills in play. It takes intention and time and personal and professional development to really hone in on this craft, this portion of addictions counseling, and it's well, well worth it. I hope that you've gotten a lot of information out of this process and listening to this. And I really want to thank you for being here. I appreciate you and the work that you do with the people that are suffering from substance use disorders. Until next time, be well. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.